many companies out there are trying to reach net zero by 2050, any other sustainability goal. And in order to do that, many of them need to clean up their supply chain. And for many companies, their roots of their supply chain lie in the agricultural industry. But it's always been difficult to determine how much carbon was being sequestered there and what was all taking place. However, with several enhancements in technology, this is becoming easier than ever. And one such company that is providing accurate data and models for farmers to utilize and understand how much carbon they're sequestering using different practices so that they can find out how much carbon they can offset and put into the carbon offset markets is Habitat, which enables to create and validate data from both satellite imagery and on the ground testing to really validate and understand exactly what's going on in all different areas around the globe. And make sure that you stick around all the way to the end because for Nick, the CEO of Habitat, describes how there is multiple aspects of their service besides just providing data and modeling, which is their main core service, but there is something more than that. There is more than just the data. And that's what becomes really interesting. So make sure you stick around all the way to the end to see exactly what Nick means. You are here for another dose of climate positivity on the Green Business Impact Podcast. Here we highlight the amazing work of green businesses from around the world that are fighting against climate change. If you are ready to be inspired to take action, ready to hear some amazing examples of how we are working to fight the climate crisis, then stay tuned because this week's episode will be the perfect hit of climate positivity. Nick, do you mind telling us a little bit about Habitera and what you do? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Nick Renke. I'm the CEO of Habitera. And we at Habitera are in environmental modeling and quantification for agriculture. So what that really means is you hear companies setting environmental targets. We're going to be net zero by 2050 or 2040 or whatever that is. One of the hardest things to do with that is just to get accurate data at scale. So we specialize in providing that in the agriculture space. So any company that's got an agricultural sourcing footprint, or we're hearing a lot about ag carbon markets and that kind of thing. We specialize in leveraging a bunch of different data sources and some really next level science and computing capabilities to model that stuff out at a reasonable scale and a reasonable cost while still making sure that we're getting accurate, credible data. So it's a big challenge. It's a lot of fun because production systems and agriculture are complicated, but that's the space that we're in. Yeah. Very cool. And where are you getting all this data from? Like, how are you aggregating it? Yeah, lots of different sources. So the thing that I love about what we do, there are a number of companies playing around with like satellite data, satellite imagery data. There are some challenges there, especially with getting down to ground truth, the real ground proof of what's happening with that specific crop in that specific field. And what's kind of unique about what we do is our founder is a professor at the University of Illinois, has done a ton of research there at the University of Illinois, but also working with various federal agencies. So we've been able to compile a significant amount of ground truth data, people actually going out on the ground, gathering data in the field. And then we're able to stitch that together with different layers of other types of data, both observational, airborne, hyperspectral, and then tie that together with the corresponding satellite data And now we can make that satellite data smarter by pulling all these different data streams together and training and constraining the models that are informed by these different sources of observational and measured data. So short answer is it's 20 something different data sources, depending on where we're looking. And we're just weaving those together. And that's where things like AI and machine learning come in handy because you can intelligently weave those things together and really create something that that can 
scale up from that localized ground truth to a more more global approach. Sure. And so where are those 20 locations? Yeah. And I want to say 20-ish data sources. It's data streams from different categories of data. So many more than 20 locations. We've actually got primary data on tens of millions of acres across sort of the Corn Belt and major production area in the United States. We're also doing some work down in Brazil, South America, things like that. So it's wherever we can get a research site. But the great thing is the way that we've designed our platform, if you have local on the ground pictures, any snap of picture with a cell phone, we can use computer vision to help that inform the satellite with the geotag in that location, or if you have a soil sample in that location. So it's whatever source of ground truth you can get in any individual area, we can ingest that into the overall model. But these models even work without that ground truthing data. So we can do a lot just with the model itself and things like satellite imagery. Very cool. And so who is using the data and what is it used for? Yeah, variety of different use cases. Probably the most compelling one in this moment, especially in the climate conversation, it would be around carbon and greenhouse gases. And that's going to be, you think about any of your large food and ag companies, right? So companies that are sourcing things like corn, wheat, soybeans, and again, here in the U.S., but also globally. So I think like Nestle Global is a really good example where they're really one of the leaders in the way that they're quantifying their footprint and looking to work more directly with farmers that they source from. But it's really, I think it's 70 something percent of Fortune 100 companies have some sort of a climate goal. So it's truly every and any corporation that has a greenhouse gas emissions goal and they have an agricultural sourcing footprint. And then on top of that, again, carbon marketplace, there's some ag carbon credits that are being transacted. So that opens it up. Even companies that don't have an ag carbon footprint, we're seeing folks in the technology and in the fuel space that are buying carbon offsets that were sourced from farmers in the U.S. So it's cool. That is really cool. And what are the carbon offsets from farmers, like how are they producing that? Yeah, so that's a really new marketplace. It's been around for probably 18 months or so now. And this is something that has honestly been attempted in the past and struggled to get off the ground. And one of the main struggles of the past sort of iterations of ag carbon markets was just getting really credible, accurate, and verifiable data. So that's a great thing in the advancement of technology. It's just a completely different space. But today it's something like if a farmer is in fairly conventional practices, they can work with the partner to quantify what they're doing. And then if they make a switch in a production practice, you go from intensive tillage to reduced tillage or you add a cover crop or something like that. Now you're sequestering more carbon in the soil and the ag carbon marketplace, there are a variety of different players in that now, but that ag carbon marketplace will compensate farmers for that additional stored carbon. So whatever incremental gain they have in carbon storage year over year, that's something that is now a marketable asset. Very cool. And how are they quantifying the carbon storage? Is that from previous research data or is that they go out there and have sensors that test the amounts? Yeah, kind of all of the above. So all the stuff that's being done in this space, it is based in deep peer reviewed science and research has to be grounded in that we actually have research that proves out the soil carbon systems. But there's some programs that are doing it with really manual intensive soil sampling. So actually going out there, putting a probe in the soil and directly physically measuring it all the way to solutions that don't ever set foot in the field. And they're just looking at environmental models with imagery and that kind of thing. And there are kind of arguments across the board as to what the best way is. And that's where we just are letting the science prove itself out and the data 
and uh, lots of statistical analysis that goes way beyond what I'm personally capable of because I'm just a business <laughs> yeah. guy, but really smart people working on that. And they, all of these quantification and all models, they're imperfect, but as long as you triangulate and try and use the best available science, that's where the market's coming from. And it's, it's an interesting space. There's a lot of activity in it right now, but it's getting better every day. Definitely. It's a lot of you as a business owner, you don't have to know every single piece of the business to run a successful business. And there are people and team members that you hire and so that they can do their job really well. And so that's one of the, one of the goals for you too. So where do you see, I know you recently stepped into this role. So how has the transition been? What have you enjoyed? What have your like favorite parts been? Yeah. It's been really incredible so far. The Habitat team is just an incredible crew of really dedicated folks. That's one of the things that I love working in this kind of climate impact space, right? You've got a bunch of passion, mission-driven people. And that's especially true of the founder of the business, Dr. Caillou Guan. Really great to get to work with him. And I have just so much respect for him as an individual because he really has a really core scientific focus but also a bit of pragmatism to understand like whatever scientific solution that we have that we come up with in the lab, like he does work with dozens of PhDs in his university lab, but whatever work he does there, he recognizes that it needs to have a real world application. It needs to be scalable. It needs to have some practicality because the best science of the world, if we can't operationalize it, ultimately, are we really making an impact? So that's been my favorite thing is to work with a bunch of brilliant technical folks from the environmental modeling team in the lab to the data scientists and engineers that we have on the team that are building kind of the back-end modeling capabilities. Just everybody, sometimes when you work with technical folks, you lose sight of the real-world applications. And that's what I love about this team. It's like, they get it. We need to go be able to take this out to market. We need to be able to serve current needs with whatever we have available. And yeah, it's great to have that really pragmatic approach. And just, it's fun working with passionate people. You can't beat that. Definitely not. Yeah. That's always really good. So your founder, he's at the University of Illinois, right? Is that the only connection between the University of Illinois and Habitare? Or is it more of, okay, University of Illinois helps out in different capacities? Yeah, with research institutions and then commercial entities that license technologies that come out of the research from those institutions. It's great to have a close relationship, but it's also great to have it be clearly defined the, the sort of separation of those two things. So the way that we work together, and this will be common of most universities that have like a tech transfer relationship, what happens is they'll generate new intellectual property, whether it's a new approach, a new methodology, a new computing algorithm, whatever it is. And then the university can potentially patent that IP and entities like Habitat can then potentially license that IP. So it becomes a great symbiotic relationship where the university has another incentive to continue to generate great advanced science and technology. And then on the private market side of things, for us as Habitat, like there's no way in the world I could afford to employ 30 PhDs just for a great R&D team, right? So like <laughs> the kind of research and technology that can come out of this university is absolutely unparalleled. So the opportunity to get to work with the university, license it, continue to promote their great work, but also be able to take that to market and help commercialize it is the way that works together. Yeah. That's very cool. Is it just his, your founder, is it just his research team? So he has a team of how many PhDs does he have working with him? Yeah, it is somewhere in that ballpark of like 30-ish PhDs. Okay, um, okay, gotcha. They're all working together in the lab. And to be clear, and they don't generate technology that just comes this direction. They generate a lot of technology in this modeling and agricultural space. So that's a place where through the university tech transfer, 
you look at it and you say, okay, does that make sense for our business? Are we interested in licensing it? So then it's just a business relationship at that point. Do we license that piece of tech or does that go to somebody else or does it get published or whatever the case might be? Yeah, they're doing all kinds of stuff, but a lot of it happens to be really relevant to this agricultural modeling space. Very cool. And where do you see like the biggest potential for this modeling technology coming up in 2022? Yeah. Near term, what we're seeing is when these corporations are setting emissions targets, a lot of the data that they're using is a generic emissions factor. So what I mean by that is you know, there are these published emissions factors out in the public domain where you can say, all right, I'm buying corn in the United States and I can get a factor off the shelf that says, okay, there's X kilograms per Y bushels of corn, that kind of thing. So then I just look at my sourcing, I look at my procurement team and say, how many bushels of corn did we buy from the United States? Simple math. But what happens is that's secondary, low quality data. Production systems are unbelievably variable from one region to the next. Even like neighboring fields can be significantly different side by side just because of different soil types, production practices, that kind of thing. So these companies, as they set these goals and start making progress, they know they need better primary data. And the better primary data they have, the more accurate their goal setting is going to be. And then they start tracking year over year progress towards goals. So tying that to a real world, when a company says they have a science-based target, usually that's going to be something like a 40 or 50% emissions reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050 is semi-standard, if you want to call it that. Not like there are any standards in the space right now, but call it the ballpark standard. But you think about that, like to take that kind of action, right? We're on, what, seven and a half years until 2030 already? Man, if you're just setting a goal right now and you're going to cut your emissions in half by then, better have good numbers and better be making a plan. So that's where it becomes operational and actionable. So that's a lot of what we're doing here in 2022 is working with partners who are just trying to get sharp in this space. Yeah. Definitely. And who has been like your recent story from one of the recent clients you work with? Like how much have they cut emissions? What is, what was their plan? How did they implement that kind of thing? Yeah. That's a tricky one in the sense that we're doing a lot of partnership work behind the scenes. So we're working with some really big players in the ag and production space, but a lot of them, they're still early days. It's really about, like I say, just setting goals, getting better data, putting together that roadmap, because it's going to be the ramping up that we see as these companies work toward those emissions. These first couple of years, a lot of companies, frankly, aren't making a lot of traction. And that's just the hard reality, right? It's not that easy to influence emissions in agriculture because you're going up through multiple steps of the supply chain multiple different intermediaries and to try to get all the way back to a farm that you source from, not the easiest thing. And then speaking personally, I come from a family farm, trying to have any influence over how a farmer farms is doubly difficult, right? So like, we're still trying to get those incentive mechanisms and the feedback loops, like that's still evolving. And I think that's one of the most interesting places to do this work. Definitely. There's this huge side of it. That's about all the data and the modeling and very scientific and the scientific testing. But there's also the people side too. Like you have to consider people's behavior and the choices that farmers make and all of that kind of stuff. How do you, like when you're working with a client, how do you bridge that? Say, okay, this is what you need to consider on this side, but how do you also consider the people side? Man, I love that question because a lot of people sitting in this space, we start looking at the financial case or the environmental case or whatever. And it's, we drill it down to just math and it's kind of like the classic problem of economists. They want that rational actor. Sorry guys, there is no truly rational human actor. And that's especially difficult in agriculture because exactly you said, it's these sociological factors that you just, at the end of the day, you're working with people. Frankly, that's one of my personal missions in this space is coming from the farm, being able to talk to people who are trying to generate programs at 
more of a system scale and just waking them up to the reality of great. You can make the financial case, make all the sense in the world, but we need support mechanisms. We need advisors on the farm that are telling farmers why this is a good idea. We need to tap into a network of farmers who are already doing more regenerative practices and get them to encourage their neighbors and share their success stories and that kind of thing. It's going to be a gradual and challenging process, but main thing is just keeping that awareness out there that the financial case isn't all there is to it. You still need the educational and you're overcoming some hurdles, like just changing farm practices is hard. So we need to go through existing channels like the farm cooperative system and agricultural advisors. The guys that are advising farmers day in, day out, those trusted folks, like need to tap into those distributed networks that have local boots on the ground people. And that's one of the challenges for us, right? Like we're not going to be the team that just replicates that network. So we need to provide them with the insights, provide them with the incentives, but then also help them with how they talk about that out in the farm community. So it's lots of hurdles overcome there, but it's a pretty fun challenge because people are really digging into it. This has made it into the public sphere in a way that it hasn't been historically in agriculture. So I'm pretty optimistic about it. That's good. Have you done any of that reach out to those networks currently, or is that something you're hoping to implement more in the future? Yeah, we're definitely connecting with those networks. A few of the farm cooperative systems we're in talks with either doing some projects with them already or scoping out projects but these would be the folks that your local grain elevator and the, the agronomist in the pickup truck that goes out and drives out and talks to the farmer about his seed and fertilizer needs and stuff like that like tapping into that group we've had a lot of great conversations with them and it's great to get the real world feedback because for us that work in this space it's like, oh yeah carbon market is going to change the world in agriculture and then those guys give us a nice big eye roll and they say, all right, that's cute and all. Tell us why I care. Yeah, no, we've done a good amount of work. And then personally speaking, I like traveling around the Midwest and just talking to real folks in the field, getting an understanding where they're coming from. But we're also working with like state and federal agencies too. So there are great agencies that have been around for a hundred years, stood up by the federal government that are out there providing these kinds of resources. That just becomes yet another touch point. Definitely. What is the connection between the farmers on the ground and the companies who are want to using this climate data to do the carbon offsets with the data from the farms and you're kind of in connect in between? How do you bridge that? Yeah, man, there are as many different approaches as there are companies, it seems like right now. So like some companies, you know, you think about the kind of one-way flow of the agricultural value chain, right? And the typical experience there is just extractive, right? Like you have multiple players that move the bushel, move that commodity through the system and process it and value add and ship it around. And you get that end user that turns it into a product and sells it to a consumer. And what happens with that end user is the more needs that they have for data, we want to understand how this was produced, where this came from. So it becomes this pull that makes its way up the value chain, but it runs into roadblocks when the business case breaks down. So when that end user is asking their tier one, their first supplier, well, that supplier has got a pretty good incentive to make sure they get them whatever information they need selling to them. But you move that two or three steps up the chain, trying to get back to a farmer. Why does that farmer care? So early days, but some entities are starting to look at putting incentives out there, right? If the farmer will share some data, create a better practice, whatever, we can get an incentive back up the chain to the farmer. But the other thing is because the service is like, Abitair, but because of technological capabilities, we can capture that virtual value chain. So if we're really trying to create a feedback loop between CPG, a consumer facing company and a farmer, if the data and the main relationship is between the farmer who's adopting better practices and the consumer goods company who is looking to improve their environmental footprint and they can get good data across, you can kind of skip a lot of those 
steps along the way. So one way to do it is attach the data to the commodity and let that move all the way through the value chain and the different players. But another way that they can do it, some of them are looking to invest much more directly in farmers. So that's one part of the carbon market in agriculture where they can do some of that. But yeah, there's lots of creative solutions coming around like that. And of course, we talk about like blockchain. Blockchain has a play in this somewhere. Industry's trying to figure out how that'll play. Okay, cool. And what do you mean by them directly investing back into the farmer? Are they making an incentive to say, okay, farmers, if you do these certain things, then we'll directly pay you? Or what does that look like? Yeah, it's a variety of different ways. So it can be like a cost share for an improved practice. So a common area like PepsiCo is a pretty good example. They've invested in some farmers where they'll say, hey, we'll cost share cover crops with you or something like that. So they help farmers buy cover crops because this is a real cost. It costs you probably $35, $40 an acre to go out and buy the seed, plant the cover crop. And then it's not a cash crop, so they can't necessarily make money off of that. So the business case is a little hard. So some companies are saying, hey, you know what? We'll share the cost with you because we think that's a good thing. And in exchange, we can share data and potentially even share an environmental claim that results out of that. Other ones are doing it through the ag carbon offset market, right? Well, that's a farmer essentially selling that sequestered unit of carbon or that avoided emission directly to the end user, whether that's down their supply chain or whether that's totally outside of their supply chain. Like a technology company could buy an offset from a farmer and now you're just directly transacting and albeit there are marketplace transactional entities in the middle of those things, but that's a much more direct relationship with the farmer than moving all the way through the value chain. Very cool. Okay. Well, I just have a couple of questions left here. First one being, what are you currently learning right now? Man, learning all the time, every day. That's why I love working in this space. There's just, there is so much to tackle. I'd say of late, the most interesting thing that I've been learning is it's tricky because a lot of folks in this space they have a partial understanding of whatever sector it is. So it could be a procurement person at a big corporation. They have an understanding of procuring crops and they have maybe a loose understanding of agriculture, but they don't understand regenerative agriculture. Or maybe they don't understand greenhouse gas emissions or the rules for quantifying, the accounting rules, greenhouse gas protocol and folks like that. So what you have is you have all these different players that are trying to work together that have just a partial understanding of the overall picture. And what that results in, then the thing that I'm learning is how many people in the space know they need to do something, but they don't really know what they want. Or so it's like for us as a service provider, we're trying to adapt to that to a bunch of different customers who may or may not know what they actually want or need. They just know they need to do something. So I'm learning that just getting clear definitions around what all of this stuff means and really dumbing it down to say, why do I care? What's the service that I need and where do I get it? And if somebody wants to reach out to you, get in touch with you, how can they do so? Yeah. Habiter.com, H-A-B-I-T-E-R-R-E.com is our website. People can feel free to email me directly. I'd love to answer questions. I love digging into this space. So it's just nick.franke at Habiter.com is my email. And yeah, love to connect. Good information out there on the website. And we've also got contact us on the website as well. So open any conversation. Yeah. And I'll put that in the show notes and description as well, so that it'll be there too. And okay. for this last question, if there is one tip that you would give someone who is looking to build their green business or grow their green business, what would you give them? Yeah. One thing that's been surprising for me has been, you think, okay, I'm in mission driven work. The ambition and the motivation will just come from that. I know I'm doing good work for the environment, feel good about it. And that works some days. But my advice would be figure out how you tie your mission-driven work and your passion for this stuff to daily motivation, whether that's the individuals that you impact 
or even just reminding yourself of why you do what you do every day because it can grind you down, right? Like it's just such a big hill to climb to make an impact in the climate space. And that can be pretty daunting and discouraging sometimes. So getting back to whatever those roots are that really drive you, really fire you up and get you like that guy you launched in the space in the first place, find a way to come back to that daily. Definitely having a poster on the wall or something that you look at or something like that is always good because, you know, the whole reason I made this podcast was really for that reason, that there's so much negativity out there that it's just overwhelming. And so there needs to be some times where you can, we understand there's a lot to tackle out there. There's a lot of things to be done, but if you can really find the time to say there are some good things going on and there's some really great progress being made. So it's just, we need to celebrate that too. You can't just always focus on the negative. So it's, there are some good things happening as well. (laughs) Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. Definitely. Great. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, Nick. I'm super excited that you were able to be here and join me. And I can't wait to have you back on the show sometime. And it was great talking with you. Yeah, that sounded great. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. If you enjoyed learning about Habitare and how it is providing an incredible amount of data and insight for the agricultural industry, then I invite you to check out this interview linked in the show notes below with Coorgen Solutions, who is taking carbon from almond shells and providing it to farmers to use as a crop growth enhancer and a biochar that is then able to sequester carbon throughout their fields. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Green Business Impact Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing your weekly dose of climate positivity. In a world that constantly inundates you with the negative things happening, it can be great to take a break and hear some great things happening in the world. Make sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to stay up to date with the latest and best interviews of the top minds in the green industries. And if you are interested in taking your green business to the next level, consider checking out our Business Creativity Mastermind linked in the show notes below to harness the power of creativity and innovation to 10x your business. Thanks again, and we can't wait to see you back here next time for another hit of Climate Positivity.